Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Cameron Abassi, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ. We have a packed episode for you with former Chief Executive of the NHS, Nigel Crisp, explaining why the UK is facing a national health and care emergency. Also, the guest editors of our US COVID series discuss the US pandemic response and how problems are built into the US Constitution. And we'll hear from Gaza, Syria and Somalia about how the BMJ's Action Aid Appeal will help people in conflict zones. Before we dive into those topics, you might notice that we've changed our podcast music. Hope you like it and the changes go further than that. For 2024, we've relaunched our podcast. Every fortnight, we'll be bringing you a magazine-style show, more variety and perspectives on medicine, health and well-being. So do subscribe to the BMJ podcast. We're on all of the podcast platforms. Firstly, we've launched the BMJ's Commission on the Future of the NHS a paper that makes a strong argument for the UK to declare a national health and care emergency is the first report from the Commission. I went to talk to Nigel Crisp at the Houses of Parliament to find out why. Well, thanks, Cameron. Real pleasure to join you. Um, My name's Nigel Crisp. I was Chief Executive of the NHS here in England for six years between 2000 and 2006. And since, actually, I've been working in Africa voluntarily on health, which has been a great learning experience as well. Um, These days, I'm an independent member of the House of Lords, so I'm part of the legislature here in, in the UK. Can you tell us what you were hoping to achieve with the paper that you've written. What did you set out to do, Nigel? Well, we were asked to think about or look at the founding principles of the NHS. And let me just say what we found those were, which were that the NHS would be comprehensive, it would be universal, available to everyone, it would be free at the point of need, it would be based on clinical need, um, and it would also be funded through collective contributions. So those five principles. And we thought about how they needed to be perhaps updated, not in terms of the principles themselves, but how they applied. Yeah. Um, and it's at that point that we pulled out six recommendations. Yes. The first one is a big one, which has attracted attention, mm. which is to say that, you know, given the state of the NHS, given the level of change, given the fact that we know that uh, a very large amount of the illnesses um, that the NHS deals with are caused by societal factors. We needed, we thought, when the new government comes in with a new lease of energy uh, and ready to to move things forward, um, that they needed to um, declare a, a, a national health and care emergency. Why use that word? Because I think it can help to bring people together. Um, and it's and it's important to point out it's not an NHS emergency or not just an NHS emergency or an NHS and social care one. It is about what's happening in the NHS and how it needs to change and adapt for the future. But it is also about what society needs to do and to bring people together, as I said, about housing and obesity and, uh, and so on. And actually, you know, there's another point here, which is this is important for the economy. Um, Because we've got an ageing population, we've got, by the look of it, an increasingly sick population. This affects our economy and our prosperity as a nation. So we think it it hits a health button, it hits a society button, and it hits an economic button. Mm -hmm. And for all those reasons, we think we need to see this as as an emergency and really get a sense of urgency. And everyone needs to contribute. 
Yeah. And is this unique? I mean, haven't we had a situation like this before? We haven't had one as bad as this. I was chief executive, as I said, in, in 2000, I came mm. into the job. And at that point, the NHS was really in a pretty poor condition, mm. but not as poor as it is today. Mm. But what's also changed is, is the increase in inequality um, and also the way in which we understand much better that if you like, health is made at home and hospitals are for repairs. Yes. You know, that the, there's a great African saying, may I say, from, from my great friend Francois Mazwa in Uganda, that actually what happens to people at, at home, in school, in their workplace and so on, these are the sort of things that will either create health and enable people to be healthy or can damage people's health. And we understand that much better. And, and therefore... It's not just the NHS getting its act together, it's the rest of society paying attention to health, taking some of the pressure off the NHS so the NHS can do its job properly. Yeah, so but I, I agree entirely. I mean, the thinking around yeah. how other sectors can contribute to people's health outcomes, I mean, yeah. that has advanced considerably. Um, yeah. Although it's not a new idea, we've had Health no. for All from WHO dating back decades. Yeah. Um, but in terms of when you started as NHS chief executive, I think that's quite an interesting comparison. I mean, you said things were pretty bad then. I mean, you talked yeah. about widening inequalities. But how else is the situation now different to what you walked into as, as a new chief executive? Well, I, th I think there are, there are probably two big things. One is the numbers are just simply worse. Um, we've, we've changed the way in which waiting lists, which is one of the uh, the issues here uh, are measured. But if I tell you that, you know, we, by 2004, we got the waiting list down below a million. Um, now, that would have been equivalent of about two and a half million in today's currency if it was counted the way it was today's currency. Today, it's seven and a half. That's yeah. a big difference. Yeah. Secondly, there's really big issues of staff. Today, we do need some more money in the NHS, but an incoming government just has to be honest with people and say, we can't give you a lot of money. There isn't a lot of money around, mm -hmm. but it will need to produce some, but I think very targeted. Mm -hmm. And it will have to recognise that it's a 5, 10, 15 year job mm -hmm. to re repair some of the damage actually that's happened over recent years. OK, I mean, this leads us back to your other recommendations. So the first one is declaring a national health and care emergency yeah. uh, when the new government uh, takes office. Yeah, what get, the, tell them to get a grip on it. Yeah, you know? yeah. Mm -hmm. What are the other ones? Well, the second one is that also very conscious from my time yeah. as chief executive that sometimes governments can go off on political issues. They can, they can do things purely for the politics of it because mm. it looks good or the headline mm. looks good or whatever. I'm not being critical of politicians. You know, they've got, a, they've got an electoral cycle. They're trying to be elected every five years. Mm. Um, so, uh, th so, so what we've introduced is a thing a suggested thing, a, an office for NHS policy and budgetary responsibility, um, which would be an independent body, which would be entitled to comment on those policies when they came out, and the government would have to pay attention to them. They wouldn't have to agree with the body, mm -hmm. because government can overrule it. But on the other hand, they would hear potential criticism of their policies before they're put into an impact, um, which would save, I think, a lot of time. And we have an example here in the UK of a th thing called the Office for Budgetary Responsibility, yeah. which does the same thing for financial planning. Yeah. So the, the objective here is scrutiny and accountability. If you take the comparison of the OBR, I mean, do you, do you believe, from what you know of it, that it is successful? It is, it is effective in terms of oh, holding think... government to account in terms of... 
financial spending? I think it shapes um, two things. It it shapes the government's thinking because actually it knows it's got this hurdle. Mm. And you may be aware that our last prime minister, it was our last prime minister, wasn't it, um, who decided to launch a economic policy and refused to let the Office yes. of Budgetary Responsibility comment on yes, it. Yes, yes. Um, uh, and that attracted a lot of criticism yeah. of the country. Yeah. Um, but it's also a way for the government to manage the narrative, you know, because actually if you've got the Office of Budgetary Responsibility on your side, then actually you've got a very fair wind. And yeah. actually this could actually be very helpful to government. I was speaking to an, a chief exec of a trust a couple of weeks ago, and when I just meant floated this idea with him, he said, actually, that's a good idea because and it's, the, the timing of it is good because not just for the reasons you're saying, but also there's this ongoing friction between the Treasury and the Department of Health yep. and not complete trust and it, it, from the Treasury side in particular as to how the money's being spent at the Department of Health. So a body like the Office for NHS Policy and Budgetary Responsibility could actually be useful in in, in 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 building some bridges and and making government behave more, more cohesively, I think that's absolutely right. That's I think mm. that's a great insight. I hadn't actually mm. thought of that. Well, I hadn't uh, until he mentioned it. To yeah, me. but and I think that applies to government worldwide. You won't yeah. be surprised to know that no. <laughs> treasuries worldwide have yeah. problems with spending departments. Yeah, and if you've got an independent body saying actually these spending departments like health and education. That that their 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 plans are sensible, then that is really quite helpful. Yeah. Do you think it's realistic? I mean, we we've, we've signed up to it, so we're we're, we're supporting the idea. Um, but there is that the comment I always get back when I mention it is that well, I that sounds idealistic, and yes, you know, you should be proposing this, but is the government really going to take that idea and, and run with it? They could do. They could do. It depends how they want to position themselves. After all, it was the government that decided to do the OBR, the Office mm. for Budgetary Responsibility, um, because actually there are advantages to government because it gives them, if they've got that, if they've got this sort of regulatory body, uh, sorry, this, this this scrutiny body, mm. responsibility body yeah. uh, on their side, that gives them a lot of power. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think actually if it was government signing up for it rather than Department of Health, they may also see it in the reverse of what the chief executive said to you, yes, as a means for the Treasury yeah. to say to, to to Department of Health, your plans don't add up. Mm. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. Um, and so I think I think there's I think there's a possibility. I haven't tested it with any politicians, right. uh, and they wouldn't tell me even if they thought it was interesting, <laughs> um, because it's the sort of thing they might want to produce. At, yeah. a, at a, a later stage. Yeah. What it mustn't do, however, is duplicate some existing bodies. Yes. So we have in, in, in England and Wales here, we have the, uh, the, 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 the Quality Commission that looks yeah. at the quality of delivery. Yeah. Um, we have NICE that sets yeah. out the, 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 the sort of protocols and the evidence. So we just need to make sure we're not, we're not yeah. duplicating anything yeah. here. I understand that. So in yeah. terms of your recommendations then, um, what are the other recommendations? Well, the, the, the four others are very straightforwardly that there needs to be a much bigger emphasis on inequalities mm. um, and that in particular we need to be looking at um, racial aspects, ethnic aspects, yeah. because actually if you look at how you might tackle um, things for people, for black people, for people of Asian origin, for 
recent migrants to this country as well. I mean, a whole range of people who are, who yeah. are, who are not in the majority. Um, then actually you'll have a big impact on inequalities mm -hmm. because those groups very often end up having the worst uh, treatment. Yeah. Um, then the, the 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 other two are that we do need we we need to get a uh, a much better health and a health and well-being strategy for the whole country across government mm -hmm. that actually I believe and I believe this is true of any government in the world that if the government has a health policy mm -hmm. part of it's about the health of the individual mm -hmm. but the health of the individual is intimately connected with the health of the community yeah. and that's intimately connected with the health of wider society yeah. and that's intimately connected with the health of the planet and I think ideally you'd have a uh, a, a, a policy, a health policy across government that was really looking at the whole picture. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to say, I've said this to a number of ministers in other countries as well. I haven't yet seen anyone who's putting it in quite those terms, sure. but this is the logic of it. Yeah. And the NHS is only part of that. Yes. The NHS can't do all these things. It can't reach uh, 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 other areas. Mm -hmm. So that's a really important part of uh, what we're talking about here is that cross-government and cross-sector health and well-being strategy. The other two recommendations? Uh, the other recommendations I, uh, were, were um, was actually connecting patients, the public and community groups into the activities and planning mm. of the NHS. Now this we're a bit more vague about mm. because what we don't want to do is to go back to old structures yeah. where we ended up with bureaucratic structures. Mm. We've got some new structures now um, which are starting to make some change um, in that, but they're not very wide. They don't bring in as many groups as one might want. And actually, I think the onus is on locally, saying to local health organisations, how are you involving your patients? But not only how are you involving your patients, how are you involving people in the community? So there's some really good examples where people are making these connections locally and it's informal and it mustn't be over-measured by central government setting targets and all the rest of it. it. It's how people need to do things. Yeah, so I mean, some of the, the measures, you, the recommendations you, you mentioned uh, previously, many of those are centrally. That requires a central change in thinking and approach. Yeah. Um, this one's more local. And one of the, prob one of the issues... Um, uh, in the UK is a disconnect between central policy making, decision making, and also what people can do locally. Yeah. Uh, how do we fix that? Well, I think we had an example in 2000 when I became chief exec, and this has nothing to do with me. Mm. The government of the day created an NHS plan by bringing people together mm. to help create that plan. And by inviting people to come and help solve the problem with you, you mm -hmm. create buy-in and momentum and energy. Mm -hmm. And frankly, that momentum and energy carried us through the next two or three years when some unpopular decisions were made from above mm -hmm. um, about engaging the private sector as in, in, in not, mm -hmm. not, not in planning care, but in, in providing care yeah. uh, and increasing patient choice and things which the profession didn't like. Yeah. Um, so... Get engaging people, setting a different tone. So this isn't leadership from on. It is leadership from on top, but it's sort of non-directive leadership from mm -hmm. on top, mm -hmm. rather than sort of dictatorial leadership yeah. from on top. Yeah. Uh, and I think you need to bring people together, get that buy-in, get the momentum, and that takes us back to the beginning to this idea of a, a national emergency, which is you know if it's a, if it's a real emergency, well mm. we should all muck in yeah. and get on and do things together. Yeah. And we saw some of that spirit in COVID, didn't we? Yeah, no, exactly. <coughs> One more recommendation? 
Well, the final one was yeah. actually around uh, technology. Mm. Um, and just uh, uh, other groups will also pick up on technology of the, mm. of the BMJ Commission. Um, but it really is that we need to get our governance right, particularly yeah. for AI. AI mm. can be a great benefit, will be, but it can also be used for, uh, you know, uh, well, private means, you know, it can it, it, it can be used to, to for private profit and private benefit. Not that I'm against it being, you know, private companies engaged in, in, in the NHS in that way, um, but it, it could end up um, distorting priorities in all kinds of ways. And it could, and we also know that people are already not happy with um, uh, decisions by algorithms. No. We only need to look at our own post office scandal to know yes. that, you know, algorithms, you know, we're all suspicious, aren't we? So there needs to be something quite big done about um, how we handle the governance of that. Some people don't agree with this view. We, oh, know, we know that. It's one of the reasons we set up the commission, yeah. in fact, just to challenge the counter view, the, the view that says the NHS is at its time, needs to be broken up, there needs to be a different um, model, uh, f- funding model. Um, what do you say to that in, in summary? What's your, what do you say to well, that particular worldview that is, a, is in, in some quarters, um, held very firmly? Oh, it is. What I find about interesting about that is they start with the money and they forget what they're trying to do. And actually what we're talking about and what they would need to talk about to convince me otherwise is that this is what we're trying to do with the NHS or with our health services. This is what we're trying to achieve. Mm. And you need to work that out and be clear. And, and we're very clear again in the paper, though only in brief, that actually the NHS, like other health systems, need to shift to being much more personal, being much more locally based, uh, locally provided. You know, work out your model of health and then work out your funding system. Yeah. Um, and these people come in with an ideological, you know, some people have talked, in fact, it was Nigel Lawson, wasn't it, that the NHS is the British religion. Um, well, the worry is there's other people for whom the market is the religion. Um, and I think we need to put aside these ideological perspectives. We need to say the BMJ is a research journal interested in science. Let's have a look at the best design of services. And then, having looked at the best design of services, how would you pay for them? Um, and I think you will find, um, I believe you will find that the way we're talking about, um, and as I say, unless you've got some, unless you can provide some compelling reasons that changing the finances will really improve the health of the population, um, which I have never seen. Nigel Crisp co-authored the first report of our NHS Commission, and in March we'll be publishing the remaining six papers. They will make recommendations on the key challenges that the NHS is facing, including funding, inequalities and workforce. We'll return to our NHS Commission in a few weeks, but in the meantime, we want to hear your views on the future of the NHS. Do get in touch via rapid response to a relevant article on bmj.com. We might even invite you onto the podcast itself. You'll find links to the Commission papers in our show notes. From the UK to the US, but staying with the politics of health, another new series in the BMJ examines what lessons we might learn from the US COVID response. 
Our guest editors for the series, Gavin Yamey and Anna Diaz-Rue, joined me for a discussion. Um, I'm Gavin Yamey. I'm a professor of global health and public policy at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. I direct a centre there called the Centre for Policy Impact in Global Health. I'm Anna Diaz-Rue. I'm a professor of epidemiology at the Dornsef School of Public Health at Drexel University, and I direct uh, the Urban Health Collaborative here, and I've been dean of the school for the past 10 years. Uh, just stepped down. Great. Well, thank you for taking the time to work on the series with us. Tell us a little about the series, what you had in mind when you put it together. So I think we wanted to create a series that really allowed us to reflect back on the on the U.S. COVID-19 uh, experience as a way, not just to think about what we need to do to prepare for future pandemics, but to reflect in a deeper way about what COVID shows, showed us about what we need to do to improve population health in the U.S. generally, and, 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 and lessons for other countries as well. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the U.S. really was an outlier amongst its peer high-income nations. I mean, you can sort of see that in the numbers, Cameron. 1.16 million Americans killed by COVID. That's 16% of all the world's deaths in a nation with just 4% of the world's population. And as Anna said, part of that is no doubt the reflection of the sort of underlying and pre-existing problems that the US had, structural problems, systemic problems, inequities, you know, gaps in our social safety net, gaps in our public health system. Even before COVID-19, life expectancy here in the US was stagnating while it was rising in our peer uh, high-income nation comparator countries. So, the, you know, these are the sorts of challenges we were dealing with. Now you throw in a pandemic and a, uh, you know, a absent federal response, you know, a, a, a Trump administration that is asleep at the wheel. Uh, you add in uh, the deprioritization, uh, the so-called hollowing out of uh, state public health services. We have a paper on that as well. Um a lack of a coordinated federal response, a very piecemeal response. You've sort of got a perfect storm of catastrophe, really. You say you don't want to apportion blame, but when it comes to the balance between federal and state responsibility, did the political system lend itself to a flawed response? Well, I mean, I, I'm not sure I can answer exactly what you're asking, but I can say a few things. So as, as we lay out in the, in the editorial, you know, there, there are sort of two big buckets of things that we think really contributed to sort of the dismal performance of the U.S. Um, one has to do with some of these you know, pre-existing conditions that were already driving a pre, you know an earlier decline in health in the U.S. And that includes things like disinvestment in public health systems. Um, limitations in the healthcare system too, and health in terms of healthcare coverage and access, which the US has still not fully addressed. Um, the absence of workplace protections and workplace safety, um, economic conditions in many parts of the, of the US that were um, you know, creating um, 
a sense of insecurity and and um, lack of opportunities, um, and also these underlying you know structural factors like high inequality and structural racism in the United States, which we know are key drivers of health. So all that, so the pandemic sort of installed itself on top of all of that. And what we saw was not surprising given the con this context. But in addition, there were other factors which were more, you know, perhaps more, you know, more, more tightly related to the pandemic response, which I think illustrated in many ways a failure, a dramatic, I would say, failure of government in the United States to really grapple with this emergency. You know, despite all the richness in the United States, all the wealth, all the outstanding research groups, all the pandemic preparedness efforts, the governmental response was terrible. And certainly, I think, you know, the, the party in government and the leaders at the time um, had a lot to do with that, but I think it goes beyond that too. I think, it, and, and, you know, one of the papers in the series on the hollowing out of the state really outlines, you know, what some of these underlying drivers were. I mean, it was remarkable that there was a, a total failure of government at all levels to generate information that was um, useful and reliable in a timely manner, you know, understanding that we were learning, right? So it wasn't gonna be perfect from the beginning, but even so, you know, leveraging all the richness, all the resources that we have to generate useful information, communicating that information um, in an effective way, and then use acting in a coordinated manner. <laughs> and because, and this was, you know, dramatic in the US because of the federal, state, local, the different jurisdictions and, you know, states arguing with each other over who was going to get, you know, protective equipment, for example. I mean, that was amazing to watch, you know, in a country uh, that has the expertise that the U.S. has in, in, in public health and in health generally. So I think it was a pretty dramatic failure of government that was illustrated. Um on that specific point, Donald Trump was heavily criticized for the way he led the response of his whole attitude towards COVID. But even if he, even if somebody else had been in charge who had a different perspective on COVID, might the U.S. Constitution and the way federalism works uh, have been a barrier to an effective COVID response? I mean, I think you're right, Cameron. I think that the U.S., by nature of that federalist structure, and we'll bring Anna in on this um, as well, because I know that she's um, uh, written quite a lot on this topic. There are inherent barriers right if you've got 50 states who are all doing their own thing um that's going to make it harder if you have a division of power between the national government and those 50 states that's going to make it harder to have a coherent rational joined up um approach now we've got a paper coming next week from michelle mello and colleagues give you a, a little taster that is about the legal response and the legal infrastructure. And it really talks a lot about federalism. And what Michelle Mello and colleagues have done, actually, is to analyse some of the legal changes that states have made that are actually going to make it harder uh, to act in the next pandemic. Um, and what's the reason for that? Is it ideology? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a hard question. I mean, I think... Um, I think... It, 
something that the pandemic also in the U.S. also highlighted is this um, big, I would say, tension in, in the U.S. between um, the, you know, the role of government, the role of society <laughs> and individual freedoms. And, um, and so I think that also becomes sort of, of course, embedded in the laws and laws of a country. And so I think what we saw in terms of a lot of the discussions, both during the pandemic, as well as, you know, subsequently, uh, even now, as, uh, you know, as Gavin was saying, changes that have been made that actually go counter to what we would want, because they limit the ability of government to act, to protect health, as opposed to enhancing the ability of government to act. I think has to do with you know a big sort of ideological um, debate yeah. in the United States about the role of government and the role of society in in in, in protecting everybody. So I, I think it has to do it has to do with that most fundamentally, mm-hmm. um, and which is kind of yeah I major agree. major issue yeah, in the I U.S. Th- in terms of not just the pandemic. I mean, that's you know the other. It's beyond the pandemic. It's about what we do as a society to protect health of everybody. And and that is reflected in many, many things that we do. And at some point, if we don't grapple with what that means, um, we're just going to fail. You know, we're going to continue to fail. We're the BMJ, formerly known as the British Medical Journal. One of you is originally from the UK, the other from Argentina. They're both now with long careers in the US. What can we add to the debate? I mean, I would say that a couple of, uh, you know, I would say a couple of things. I mean, firstly, it's been really fantastic working with Anna. And I think that one of the reasons is that because we are, um, you know, both insiders and outsiders, you know, we live here, we work here. Uh, you know, I have a kid at public school here. And I think that allows us to um, uh, have a bit more of a, a of a comparative perspective i think that it means that you know when we think about health systems and health systems weakness we can do so through a sort of comparative health systems uh lens yeah i mean i think you know as an immigrant to the u.s um one of the reasons i work live and work in the u.s is because of all the strength that there is within the u.s system in many aspects of public health i think you know we have really incredible example. I mean, CDC worldwide is a leader in many areas. The EPA, EPA regulations through the Environmental Protection Agency were, you know, are happened much sooner than in other countries. And and, and I think the EPA process, for example, um, I was on the Clean Air Scientific Advisory Committee. I chaired it for a couple of years. It was remarkable. I mean, the use of evidence to set Air, air pollution standards, which protected so many people. Um, so the U.S. has, and then the very strong research, I think, capabilities of which attracts many people like us to the U.S. to work within the U.S. system. So I think there's so much strength and so many possibilities to really use what we know to improve health that it was quite dramatic and sad for us, really, to see this this failure, um, which in in some ways was predictable, to be honest, but because of all these other things that we've been talking about. So I think, you know, I think also because of this and because of some of the, you know, some of the things that did happen during the pandemic to protect people, some of the actions that were taken, for example, our city government, Philadelphia, I think did a terrific job um, 
the health department. So, so there are examples, both local and national, of positive things. And so I think the, the challenge now is, you know, how can we really learn from this as a society and figure out a way to make the changes that we need to make going forward in the current political context? That's that's the big challenge. But I think we hope that, you know, our series will, will contribute to, to this debate. The US COVID-19 lesson series has started on bmj.com. You'll find links in our show notes. Finally, each year the BMJ runs an annual appeal and our readers and listeners very generously donate to improve health. In 2023, ActionAid was our chosen charity and as our annual appeal closes, we're bringing you some messages from Gaza, Syria and Somalia about how funding is helping people in those disaster zones. Hello, my name is Yad Isa and I'm the head of humanitarian policy at ActionAid UK. First and foremost, I would like to express my gratitude to the British Medical Journal for hosting us. ActionAid works in many emergency situations around the world, including Gaza, Somaliland and Syria, where healthcare is impacted by conflict, climate change and natural disasters. Right now in Gaza, only 14 hospitals are partially functioning, trying to save as many lives as they can, while facing critical challenges such as the shortages of medical supplies, clean water and fuel. People who require regular medical attention become highly vulnerable in situations of conflict. In Gaza, for example, the situation is especially dire for kidney failure and cancer patients, where thousands of them are at high risk due to shortages of medications, blood products and dialysis machines. Women are often the most impacted in conflict situations. According to the World Health Organization, more than 180 women have been giving birth every day in the Gaza Strip. 15% of them are likely to experience pregnancy or birth-related complications and need additional medical care. With the severe impact of the war on healthcare facilities and hospitals, some women are having to give birth in shelters, in their homes, and sometimes in the streets, or in overwhelmed healthcare facilities where sanitation is worsening and the risk of infection and medical complications is on the rise. The life of newborns also hang by a threat, with neonatal care units facing a lack of electricity and oxygen supplies to keep these babies alive. In situation of conflict, access to healthcare is often restricted, and healthcare systems are under immense strain. Donations to Action Aid, including from this year PMJ Appeal, can help fund Action Aid emergency response in a crisis. Our response includes supporting our partners by providing funding for medical equipments, medical supplies, and more. We also work to protect the life and health of those impacted by humanitarian crises by providing essential food supplies, shelter kits, and access to protection services. I will hand over now to my colleague Noura Mohammed, the country program manager for Action Aid Somalia and Somaliland, who will talk more about the combined impact of conflict and climate change on women's health. Thank you, Ziad. Climate change and conflict impose significant challenges for women's health and well-being, especially in low and middle-income countries. 
women are disproportionately affected by the impacts of climate change due to their roles in food production, water collection, and caregiving. Women are the most vulnerable groups in situation of climate change and conflicts. They face multiple challenges such as displacement, violence, and food insecurity, and lack of basic services. Access to healthcare is a fundamental human right and a key component of women's well-being and empowerment. However, in many contexts, women's access to healthcare is severely limited by physical, financial, cultural, and institutional barriers. These factors contribute to the high maternal and child mortality rates, low contraceptive prevalence, and poor reproductive health outcomes among Somali women. All women in the fragile conflict-affected context deserve to have access to quality, affordable, and culturally appropriate health service, regardless of the challenge they face. They have the right to enjoy good health and well-being and to participate in decision-making about their health needs and preferences. To address these challenges, it's essential to adopt a gender-responsive and human rights-based approach to healthcare provision and policy-making. By enhancing women's access to healthcare during climate change and conflict, we can not only improve their health outcome and quality of life, but also contribute to the achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals and the realization of human rights for all. Uh, my name is Dr. Adnan, General Surgery Specialist and Medical Director at Enel Beda Hospital, supported by Action Eats Partner Violet Organization. Our hospital was suffering from a lack of medicines and medical consumables. After the earthquake occurred, the situation has become worse in terms of the increase in the volume of work and the number of patients and injured people. Of course, at the time of the earthquake, I was in the hospital where the ground shook and there were large vibrations that lasted more than 30 seconds. Panic spread throughout the hospital facilities and there were sounds of crying and screaming from patients and nurses. Immediately after that, we activated the earthquake emergency plan where we distributed tents to all medical staff and gave them the opportunity to visit their families. The most important challenges we faced is the great pressure that occurred from patients as a result of injuries with limited of hospitals, capacities of medicines and consumables. Of course, things improved greatly and it was a major turning point after the hospital was supported by Violet and a partner Action Aid as a response after the earthquake. That's it for this episode, but we'll be back in a fortnight examining how we can combat social media misinformation, particularly when it comes to vaccine hesitancy. And the answer, of course, isn't a Twitter tirade. Please subscribe. We're on all major podcast platforms. If you want to comment on anything you've heard, you can send us a rapid response on bmj.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Cameron Abassi. Thanks for listening.